Hi everybody, this is still uh, Alessio Longo. I am uh, an Italian uh, Qigong and Tai Chi Chuan practitioner and uh, teacher too, and I'm recording this podcast in order to provide some basic information to those that are uh, approaching those disciplines. Uh, of course, so the quality of the English that I can speak is the one that you are hearing now, and I'll do my best uh, to make myself comprehensible to everybody. So, in the first episode of the, the podcast, uh, we analyzed the terms Tai Chi and Qigong, and uh, roughly understood uh, to which kind of disciplines those two terms uh, refer to. Um, in this episode, I would like to underline uh, the root of these disciplines, because what is interesting in the Chinese culture and in the Asian culture uh, in general is that uh, the philosophies of those cultures are philosophies that uh, come from practice and direct experience. So, if we think especially at the philosophy of uh, the ancient China, and uh, of the culture that came out of, from those philosophies, uh, a culture that spread to uh, Korea, Japan, and other parts of the Southeast Asia. Uh, the era when this kind of philosophy started to aggregate in different schools was uh, around uh, the, let's say, the fifth century before Christ. What is interesting is in, that in this period, the philosophers already referred to ancient knowledge. So actually, we do not even know where the Chinese knowledge really started, because all the, all the way of thinking of the Chinese philosophy is to think toward the past. The ancient masters, they really know how things work. This is true uh, also for the two main schools of Chinese philosophy, which is Confucianism and Taoism. Both of them like to refer to the knowledge of the ancient masters, and those ancient masters are almost mythological figures. So according to the information that we have, especially from the Taoism, which is uh, the philosophy that uh, uh, influenced the most these kind of practices, those philosophies were interested in uh, internal experience of uh, the practitioner. So we can link this philosophy to the one that maybe we know more, which are the Indian philosophy related to yoga, or if you want, to the Buddhism. The Buddhism is uh, a philosophy or a religion that comes out from the experience of one man, which is the historical Buddha. And through his practice, he managed to understand many things about himself and the nature of the things. This uh, is not logic. This is a, a direct experience. What is interesting of this philosophy is that this philosophy refers to things really existing but being beyond the common experience. So, what they are looking for is to use themselves and the body, especially, as a, a tool of understanding the reality of the things, and to realize that the reality of the things has directly experienced by the senses, the fine mere senses, and the mind is only a first step toward a deeper knowledge of the reality of things. And this is not something they think about, this is not something they understand by a book, or by knowing some philosophy, this is something that they experience themselves. So, 
on one side, I think that uh, referring to a book, to a philosophy, uh, to a religion is important because it's important, for example, that somebody tells you that maybe there is something beyond what you see in your body and that maybe there is something different in the way you may think about your body experience. We already referred in the first episode to the term chi, which is something that we cannot really see, touch and smell, but we can perceive as practitioners. So this kind of knowledge related to books on oral tradition is important because it gives you an idea of a possibility toward you may go. But this does not represent the knowledge itself. And if you think about it, this is a difference between how, between the Chinese philosophy and the way the Western philosophy or way of thinking uh, developed through the centuries. At the beginning, as, me, as we may uh, better understood in another episode, the, the root of the two thinking were not so different, but toward the centuries, the two thinking went into opposite direction. So mainly us as Westerners, we refer to our knowledge as something that has to be understood with the mind. And I don't want to, of course, to, uh, uh, to say that this is not important and this is not a wonderful tool. So we went in a direction where the mind was uh, the root of the, uh, of the knowledge. In some way, in, in the Chinese and Eastern philosophies, they wanted to get their knowledge from the experience. So these kind of practices, energetic practices, that will take many centuries later, the name of Qigong, if you want, are practices that are not the result of a philosophy or a religion, if you want, but are the beginning and the root of those, these philosophies and, and religion. So, for example, if you think about a seminal text of the Taoism, like the Lao Tzu or Tao Te Ching, this is the text where the practitioner is writing about his own practicing experiences and how the view of the world is changing through these experiences. And it is not the other way around. So these practices like Qigong, and if you want to see the Tai Chi as a part of the Qigong world, make it a, a martial art, derive directly from the first experience that the Chinese philosopher had at the beginning of the Chinese civilization. We don't really know where, how, and when. We will never know. It is impossible for us to know the past in such a, a specific way. But from the text that arrive us from the later period, like, uh, as I said, the fifth century before Christ, or even before, we know that sages in that period referred to this knowledge as an ancient knowledge toward which they were referring. And uh, as I said in the first episode, this, this gives the idea that the knowledge is always in the past. And what you have to do to go toward this knowledge is to reach the knowledge of the ancient masters. But in the reality, in practice, these kind of disciplines changed and evolved and the way one master thought to another student evolved too toward the centuries. So 
as we saw in the first episode, and we will see more in details in the other episode. We see from the more, much more detailed information about, for example, the history of Taiji Chuan of the 19th and 20th century, that these disciplines kept evolving through uh, the years and from master to master. So, on, on one way, the root of the PCD discipline is ancient. On the other way, the form toward which these disciplines evolved actually changed century after century. And this is also an illusion that we have when we think about other civilization uh, or to the Chinese civilization itself. It's it, like if it was something always stopped in time, never evolving. Only the West with the Industrial Revolution evolved. And this is absolutely not true. The, the Chinese civilization from the scientifical and philosophical point of view changed and evolved century after century. Only the experience of the Industrial Revolution make, in certain ways, the West to develop so fast compared with all other civilization to make all other civilization in that, uh, in that regard seem like uh, not developed enough. But as I said, this is only an illusion, an illusion that the Chinese way of thinking always strengthen, because they, all, they also, as I said before, refer to the knowledge as something that is coming from the past, and not and never as something that is living and changing and can be better developed centuries after centuries, which is in the reality what actually probably happened and is happening in a few places in the world still now. So, to end this episode, at the origin of the Chinese civilization, if you want, at the origin of the Chinese empire civilization, which started in 2021 before Christ, with the establishment of the Qin Empire, the first emperor which united all the other kingdoms of the Zhongguo, of the Middle Kingdom itself, of the Middle Nation, the Middle Hertz. In that period, we had two main schools that came out from the fighting between all the different schools that happened a few centuries before. The first school is the school of Confucius, Confucianism. And in the, uh, in the way it evolved during the centuries, this is a very formalistic uh, way of thinking that states that basically there is a very hierarchical uh, order in the society, in the family. So uh, the son should abide to the father, the woman should abide to the man, to the father or to the, her son, and uh, the, the citizen have to abide to the emperor, and uh, so on. So there is always, in any case, between you and another human being, a hierarchical uh, let's say, relationship. There are no equals in this point of view. Even two twins, the one that comes out as first from the mother, that is the bigger brother, and he will have a hierarchical position toward the other twin that came out of the mother. So, unfortunately, this is the most important uh, things that came out through the history of the Confucianism. If you go to read the, the writings of Confucius, it was not like this uh, uh, in the beginning. If you go to see the writings of Confucius, what, uh, that there are many points that uh, are similar between Confucius and Christianism, if you want. Because 
at the end, Confucius, what he really wanted was for people to behave well. And as you understood, the Confucianism philosophy was something that was very uh, interested in the, the relationship between uh, the humanity, between the man. How do I behave toward other people? So the hierarchical organization helped anybody to understand which was the right way to behave toward each other. You can easily understand that this kind of philosophy became, through the century, a way the power maintained itself. But in some way, all religion became something like this, unfortunately. So if you say that the Confucianism was the philosophy that was uh, interested the most in the relationship between different men in the society, the Taoism was the philosophy that was interested in the personal development of, uh, of men. The root of these disciplines were the practices. The practices were not for everybody, of course, because these kind of practices were for somebody that had uh, the position and the time to practice. In order to be master, these practices require time, hours. So, generally speaking, we can say, even if the image that we have is of a, a master that is by himself in the forest, maybe poor, maybe the way we think about the ancient uh, Indian uh, yogis, this probably is not true through the uh, Chinese history. Probably these uh, uh, disciplines were mastered by people that were, for example, medical practitioner or people that holded uh, governmental positions that were, as they used to say, Confucian in the day and Taoist in the night. So I struggle to see like uh, a peasant that had to work eight hours a day on his field as then uh, going back home and doing these practices. Of course, there has been uh, a lot of sharing of this knowledge toward the common people uh, during the centuries, and this is uh, um, one of the points I refer to when I say that uh, the nature of this practice is changed. So it's common now for uh, somebody in China to uh, go retire and uh, to practice in his retirement years uh, these uh, practices. But uh, uh, I think it is more correct for us to think of these practices as uh, elite practices. Unfortunately, if you think uh, about it also in the Western history, uh, knowledge was always a privilege for certain type of classes. This is very clear, for example, in the Indian society, where knowledge was explicitly uh, allocated to the upper class, which was the Brahman class. And uh, this is not only uh, something that happened in India. Uh, to have time to think about the knowledge is a privilege that uh, is not for everybody. So I say this also uh, to, un to underline that probably the people that were practicing uh, this kind uh, of, uh, uh, of disciplines were also people that were very highly educated. Because in, during the Chinese history, much more than what happened in the West, uh, people with education were also the people that managed uh, the power. So if we think about the history of power in the West, uh, 
the cavaliers, the warriors, they were very often the, uh, the, ruling, uh, the ruling part of the society. So the king is the main warrior and all the lords are the, the warriors that go with him in war. Uh, in China, this was not the case. So the army was not uh, the elite of the society. There were uh, a sharp, uh, a sharp, let's say, uh, divergence from the civil society and the army uh, organization. And you will never expect, for example, for the emperor to go on a on a horse and walk in front of his own army. And uh, this may help us to also uh, understand that if we have the idea also today of a differentiation between the uh, intellectual knowledge and the internal practice knowledge, we have to pay attention to uh, what ha really happened in the Indian and Chinese society. People that were the masters in these disciplines were also people very often, very often, that were masters in intellectual knowledge too. So I want to debunk some of the, with this podcast and uh, the, every episode, some kind of wrong ideas that we may have toward these kind of disciplines and so how to be successful toward these disciplines. So if you think that the best person that can be successful in this discipline is the one that don't read books but only practice itself, this is what, not what uh, happened in the, in, in the ancient Indian and Chinese society. So uh, we end here this second episode. I hope that this podcast is going to help you to understand better these kind of disciplines and how to get uh, the best from them. See you to the next episode. Mm -hmm.